What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with producer and former chairman of NBC, Jeff Gaspin. We recorded this episode back in May. It's odd timing of the release of this episode, given the major shakeup at NBC that we've all been reading about. Jeff gave great insight in this interview to what it's like running a major broadcast network. We talked about the upfronts of old, the golden era of cable, because he did run the entire NBCU cable portfolio at one point. We talked about the Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien transition with The Tonight Show that he was thrown in the middle of. We talked about his infamous quote-unquote $200,000 bathroom that made a lot of headlines at the time. So we talked about all the NBC stuff, how The Apprentice got sold, how The Biggest Loser got made. We also talked about his VH1 days, Behind the Music, Pop-Up Video. We talked about his new show on Netflix, Rhythm and Flow, and how many years he'd been trying to sell that. Such a great, wide-ranging conversation. This is my sit-down with Jeff Gaspin. I hope you enjoy it. As I was starting to prep this morning, knowing I was going to talk to you, I was reminded of the fact that this time of year... In any ordinary year, we'd be talking about network upfronts. And I was thinking, is that like one of the parts of the job as a, of a network executive that you don't miss? You know, I, I actually, I didn't mind the upfronts. It was, um, and, and now, especially now that I'm a producer and, you know, you follow the whims of cable and streaming where there's no pattern whatsoever of buying and ordering content. I actually look back at the days of upfronts and and really um, uh, miss them because really yes because the upfronts created a cycle that was very easy to follow and was very predictable. Um, you would or you know you would pitch a certain time of year. They would make they would take or you know the networks would buy a certain time of year, and then um, you'd produce and you'd find out if your show made it or not by the upfronts, which were in May. And that was about a nine month cycle, maybe even a little less versus um, shows that I've, I've pitched and sold and got on the air three years later now with cable and streaming. So there was, there's something to that, um, to that process that while it was crazy and everyone talks about how inefficient it was back then, now as a producer, I find that it actually is quite efficient and it creates, um, it really creates goalposts that you play within. And um, But did you I, find that, I mean, is, is the reality world really connected to that cycle? Like even at ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, where they still kind of live in, live in the upfronts world, does that even affect us so much in the reality community? Because I always feel like the reality folks are buying all year long and not necessarily tied to an upfront announcement in the same way the scripted folks are. Right. No, that, that is true. But, but upfronts, there's always, you know, whether you're in cable or broadcast, the upfronts always created some certain amount of demand for, um, for content, scripted and unscripted, mostly scripted. Even as a buyer of unscripted content, you still follow that pattern. Even though you could buy throughout the year, you don't know what, when the, where the holes in the schedule were going to be. And, and as you know, most reality get premieres in the summer or gets bought for the summer. It certainly has over the years. And so, again, the summer, while it doesn't match exactly the upfront cycle, it's still a cycle, right? It's still we need content starting in June to go through September when the when the new season begins mm-hmm. broadcast. 
and to some extent for cable because they're buying. If you're following the ad market, you're following that upfront cycle. It's, um, it's, it's funny to hear you say as a programmer and as a network head, you never had an issue with the upfronts because to me, outside looking in, I've always felt like the upfronts is one of the most intimidating audiences that anybody can play to. And you are doing it in the same week as all your competitors. So there's a competitiveness of who's putting on the best actual show in person when they announce their fall lineup. And then you have the actual pieces of the fall lineup themselves that are on display. I always felt like that's a hard room. Yeah. So I I would say it's, um, it's a, it's a bifurcated um, history. There's before streaming and there's after streaming. Right. Before streaming, everything you're talking about is true. It's, it's a very intimidating time of year for programmers. It's a very intense time of year. Um, the entire company focuses on that upfront. You have your ad sales people really pushing hard to bring out, you know, for you guys to deliver the best content possible. You've got your CEO, your CFO, all looking at the economics of what you're bringing forth. Um, you've got all the agencies and the agents you know, pushing to make sure their pilots, their clients' pilots get picked up. Yes, an incredibly intimidating time before streaming. So mm. post-streaming, who gives a shit? <laughs> In all honesty, I mean, all, all bets are off. Yes, the broadcasters have to follow, still follow those patterns, but why? You know, wh- why does it matter when you're, you know, your network's delivering a one rating, a um, little bit better than a one rating? Um, and, and streaming is, is all the rage and they're buying five times as much content as the broadcasters are. So, so I think, you know, I, I've obviously lived through both worlds, both cycles. And so again, I, I, I do have a fondness for those old cycles as insane as they were. And we used to talk about, um, how crazy it is that all the networks are producing, you know, 80 to hundred pilots at the same time. Bending, you know, fighting for the same actors, the same directors, the same writers. Um, yeah, and it was insane. And it, but, but I will say, again, that predictability, um, there was something some, I miss. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's just human nature to always want what you can't have. Um, so when we had it, we really didn't want it. And now that we don't have it as much anymore, we kind of want it back. So I think there's some of that. I think some of it is just human nature. And you didn't have you know. stage fright. You didn't get nervous going into that big oh, ballroom. Sure, sure. Because remind All the audience, remind the audience of where NBC would hold the upfronts every year. Most well, years. It, it was either Radio City or you know, um, one year the year I had to do it, it was in a ballroom at the Hilton. But um, that's because we had announced the year before we were giving up the upfronts, and um, we lost our place at Radio City, only to change our minds and realize. Nobody else was giving it up, so we had to jump back in. Mm. Uh, and the only thing that was available was a ballroom in the Hilton. So it wasn't as um, the Hilton Hotel right. in New York. It wasn't as glamorous as Radio City the year I had to do it. But um, oh. I think CBS used to, you know, used to do it at Carnegie Hall. It was always a, a really famous, exciting venue, and it was always bigger than it should be. Um, but it was exciting, and it was um, exhausting. Uh, but I, I did find it exhilarating. Um, I went through probably, I don't know, 12 to 15 of them over my career, you know, the big, the broadcast ones. Yeah. Um, and then I did probably another half dozen or so in cable. Um, 
So those, those were a little smaller and a little saner, and, but they were always fun. They're always accompanied by big parties and you got all your talent together in one place. And that was what, that's what a broadcaster was, you know, in the, in the nineties, um, right. you know, up to the mid two thousands. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, having been so entrenched in that system, you know, having ran a cable network group, having ran a major broadcast network yourself, let's just jump to it. I, was, I usually go linear, but with you, it's so exciting. The fact that you're producing rhythm and flow um, for Netflix. When you started working with Netflix on that, what was the biggest kind of eye opener for you you know, coming from the cable broadcast world, was there anything in the Netflix system or the process of getting the project through? Anything that kind of jumped out at you as, oh, this is how the OTTs do it differently? The, the streamers are not as, um, they weren't as rushed. Um, so there was definitely more thought at the, um, at the format of the series, um, how we, you know, more detail. I was a little surprised you know, we, we, we heard for many years that, that the streamers give you a lot of freedom and give you the ability to um, produce your content. You know, that was that was the, the draw in the early years of going to the streamers. This was more from the scripted side was um, they give you a lot of creative freedom and they just, you know, here's your budget. Go make your show and deliver it. Um, that wasn't the truth. That wasn't the case on the, um, on the unscripted side. There was a lot of conversation, a lot of thought put into um, the format before we actually started shooting. Um, I think part of part of that is a lot of the, the people that run unscripted at the broad, at the streamers come out of broadcasting. Mm. And so they follow some of the same patterns. Um, but I found it a pretty, pretty similar in all honesty. I mean, when you, when you think of hip hop, you think of Jeff Gaspin. Absolutely. So you what? <laughs> so, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So by the way, you have more street cred than any guest I've ever had on the podcast <laughs> without a shadow of a I doubt. I have a pair of Air Jordans that were given to me by my, my co-producers. By uh, John, John Legend? No, um, Jesse Collins and uh, oh, sure. Dion, uh, who works with Jesse. Um, they, were the, you know, they were the production company uh, that... Uh, I needed to hire for credibility since I certainly didn't have any and still, still only have a tiny, tiny bit. Wait, but tell um, me, was that one of the projects, were you referring to that show when you said that you'd worked on projects for nearly three years? Were you referencing? Yeah, that one had a long gestation. Um, I originally pitched that show to Fox. Okay. And I pitched it to Fox. Um, During the Empire run, right? Yes. Empire had just premiered and been a huge success. And it seemed to me that Fox, frankly, at the time, and streamers weren't really even buying unscripted back then. That was probably five years ago. I think it was 2015 that, wow. that I pitched it to Fox. Um, and it was a different show. It wasn't the show that ultimately made it to, um, it was called American Soul when I originally pitched it um, with, you know, John Legend was my partner and another guy, Jeff Pollock. Um, and it was going to be um, a hybrid singing and hip-hop competition so it was going to be r&b and hip-hop um, and we were going to it was going to be mostly collaborations and because i was a former network uh, executive i knew what the the um concerns were going to be from the buyer's perspective they were going to think it was too narrow for broadcast and so what we were able to convince fox at the time was corey henson and um and actually dave madden mm -hmm. was the president of fox at the time but corey henson was the head of unscripted 
And what we were able to convince her is that of all the top 10 um, songs on pop, uh, on the pop chart, on the pop music charts, seven out of 10 of them were, were hip hop uh, R&B combinations or hip hop pop combinations. And so we pitched a show that was going to merge the two and there were always, there were always going to be duets. Uh, and so if hip hop was going to be a little too narrow for the broadcast audience, um, the, the, the melody and the singing part was going to broaden it. And that, and that was the, the idea, but, but ultimately, um, was it in development at Fox? Yes. So Fox bought it and put it in development. And, and interestingly, Rob Wade was my producing partner. What? Rob Wade and BBC was going to be the production services part, as okay. well as a creative partner. Um, Corey wanted somebody who had a big, shiny floor show experience. I had it as an executive, but not as a producer. And obviously, and Corey, so, from her ABC roots, had worked with BBC on Dancing with the Stars. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So there's always some connection. But again, Rob, myself, none of us had hip-hop credibility and it would have been a disaster, I think, had we made it to air. But what ended up happening is there was a change in administrations, no surprise, interestingly. So Corey, uh, Corey was still there, but Dave Madden was gone. Right. Um, and then um, I think then Dana took over. I can't even right. remember. This is the Dana-Gary the- regime. Yeah, Dana and, Gary, Dana and Gary actually were still in charge, but, but Madden was out. Um, and then I guess Michael Thorne was in. But, oh, and then Rob got hired right. to, to be Corey's boss. And I remember turning to him one day and go, well, what about our show? They had, oh, sorry. They had passed on Rhythm and they had passed on American Soul prior to Rob getting that job. Okay. I think about six months later, Rob gets the job. And, I, and I, I, I'm having lunch with him. And I said, what about American Soul? And he looked at me. He was like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, which is really interesting because he was a partner on the show and a, and a creative. I think, you know, we had a moment, right? The moment was the success of Empire. I even had suggested at the time that the winner gets a spot on Empire and it would have made a lot of sense. But now I think we're two years into Empire. Ratings are already starting to, you know, to they're not what they used to be. It's still a big hit, hit show, but anyway, they pass. Um, fast forward maybe six months, a year, and Brandon Rieg, who I worked with at NBC, gets the head job um, at Netflix. I went into him. Uh, we had lunch. I pitched him a bunch of ideas. I told him about this hip-hop show. Now, interestingly, in the time... Now, now you're making it a hip-hop show. Is that how you're framing well, it? Well, no. It's still, it's still American Soul. I'm still okay. pitching it as American Soul. It's still okay. this collaboration. But what had really changed was hip-hop, rap, became the number one format in music. In the, in the few years that I was developing the show, hip hop actually became the number one format. And I was able to walk into Brandon and say, this is the number one format in music. John Legend came along, my other partner, Jeff Pollock. We all went in, pitched the show again, pretty similar to what we pitched Fox. Brandon was intrigued. Um, and we then, and, and then to Brandon's credit, you know, he, he wanted, um, he wanted to develop it more. He really wanted it thought out. And he really wanted to understand why we were doing what we were doing. And he wanted me to bring on somebody who could, you know, besides John Legend, who could produce a hip hop show and had credibility. And um, David Gross, my agent at CAA, introduced me to Jesse Collins, 
who had produced, who produces all the um, hip hop award shows for BT. Got it. Um, and, uh, and so we met with Jesse, all of us um, from John Legend's company, Jeff Pollock, myself, we all met with Jesse and Dion really thought they were terrific. And we brought them on as our, our producing partners um, and then really played out the show, you know, played out the creative for the show and at some point after just hearing from Jesse and hearing from someone who had real authority in the hip hop space, I realized this shouldn't be a collaboration show. This should be a show where we just find the next hip hop star. And I, and I pitched that to my partners and they all agreed. And we went back to Brandon and we said, here's what we're thinking. We really think this should be just hip hop. No, you know, this shouldn't be a hip hop R&B competition, collaboration type show we should just find the next big rap star. Um, no broadcaster, no cable network will touch it. Um, advertisers will be afraid of it um, because of the language, uh, because of some of the tone. Um, and we really convinced him that Netflix was the only place that could do a show like this. And, and he agreed. And so we finally, you know, we finally got it going. We brought in a show, uh, uh, you know, like a real, stage shiny stage floor showrunner nikki boella who is coming off of both america's got talent and and uh, america's um oh man what's the show uh america's got talent both american idol and america's got talent and uh, and that became the team and um tell me tell me what the courting of cardi b was like <laughs> um you know I, I i will turn most of the credit for getting the talent that we got over to Jesse and his team. He really had great relationships with the management of all the great hip hop talent, all the great R&B talent. You know, we, we put our list together, uh, Chance and Cardi, and, you know, we're really, really high up um, in terms of new and current talent. And then it was really important that we had an OG um, on the, on the panel and, and TI was, was, you know, um, one of, uh, you know, one Perfect. of the tops. Did you, uh, did you make a deal with any label or labels before going into Netflix or was that all, once you got into development with Netflix, you started courting labels and working out? So one of the, uh, one of the, um, only ways chance would agree to be part of the series is if we didn't make a deal with a label. But, you know, chance is an independent. He has managed his career himself and he's, re- and he's, uh, um, released his music, um, you know, through independent uh, channels. So he said, I, I won't do this if you have a deal with um, with a label. Wow. And so we made that part of this series is that we were not going to tie anybody down. And that also meant that we didn't have any piece of the talent as well, which is very different than the other music shows. Mm. Um, and so we were giving them um, a great opportunity. We're going to, you know, give the winner a great opportunity um, great access to terrific producers and talent, but we were not, they were not going to be beholden to us or any label and they could do what they want. Um, after the series was over. Can I, can I take you back into the time machine now? Sure. Absolutely. Can we go through the career path and the greatest hits? Uh, let's start at VH1. So the job, you, you were president of VH1? No, I was a head of, con- head of content. Head, head of, of content. Content. And you had been at NBC, you started in finance and worked your way into the news department yeah, at NBC. So, so I started NBC right out of business school. Right. Um, and I was in finance in the stations division. Then I went to the entertainment division. I was like a production 
uh, I did production finance. So I was in charge of, it was at the time, it was David Letterman was on NBC. It was all the East Coast shows because I was located on the East Coast. And then I moved to NBC News and spent five years at NBC News and had just a great experience there. I, was the, I started as the CFO, um, but eventually became the head of content for, for, um, for NBC News, the head of development, basically, um, where I met a young kid who was 25 years old at the time named Jeff Zucker. Oh, wow. Um, and that's, Jeff, where you, that's where you met Jeff Zucker because he was yeah, sure running. Jeff, and, and Jeff and I you know, became good friends back then. He was several years younger than me, um, but we were wait, both pretty young. Wait, is he, is he show running the Today Show at this time when you met not, not yet. He was actually supervising producer of the Today Show um, okay. when we met. And um, I was part of the management team at NBC. I was on the finance side, but I was also in charge of strategic planning. The, the president of NBC News was this really um, interesting guy, a, 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 a print journalist named Michael Gartner, um, who, who didn't care about the old rules of broadcast news and was willing to take a lot of chances, including, you know, making a, at the time a 28 year old, his CFO and, um, and Jeff Zucker, who was 25, I think he turned 26, ultimately becoming the executive producer of the Today Show at That's 26 crazy. years old. That is crazy. Um, and, 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 you know, Michael was a real seasoned journalist. I mean, a Pulitzer, he became a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Um, so really, and I, and, I, and I believe he was the front page editor of the Wall Street Journal when he was 28 years old. So Jeff had, so, so Michael had no issue giving opportunities to young people. He actually really, really loved it. And he just made sure there were um, what we now call OGs. I don't think we knew the term OG back then, but um, he made sure there were, were really seasoned professionals surrounding us mm-hmm. to make sure we didn't step in too much shit. Um, but he really did give opportunities to, to us. And, and anyway, um, what, so, made, what made you want to make the leap to VH1 at that point? Well, I got fired. Um, <laughs> so I had a, that's, I, that's a, a reason really good run. It was that's a, really a perfectly good, good reason. Yes. It was a really good run. And Michael was a mentor and, and still a, a, a friend. Um, but what happened was on that show dateline, we had a big controversy and um, it, we were telling the story of pickup trucks and how the gas tank was placed in the wrong part of the um, chassis of the truck. So in an accident, it would explode and, you know, burn the occupants. And so we, we had a piece on Dateline that was basically an expose on that story. But it turned out, as I recall, I, I'm not, my, my memory is a little foggy here because it's 30 years ago, but um, the producer of that piece actually put an incendiary device on the gas tank in order to make sure it exploded for the purposes of the story. Now, the way I understand it is they never used the incendiary device. The tank exploded on its own, but we as a news division never exposed, never revealed that we had done that just in case. And, um, uh, GM basically had a press conference. This is now months later after the piece is aired. It's now months later. They basically tell this that they had found this out. We didn't even know about it. And I think we were surprised to hear about it. It was a huge investigation. Fast forward, um, Michael Gartner ended up resigning from the news division. Um, I stayed for a little while, but given that I was um, one of his direct reports, 
I ended up leaving probably about four months later. So oh in, in one of those, you know, really nice, look you in the eye. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, there's no, there's no room for you anymore at NBC News. Um, and NBC News wasn't really the right place for me. It was given the team of people that I was working with, but longer term, it was not, you know, I'm not a journalist. I never was a journalist. And um, even though I helped create Dateline and then another show called Eyewitness Video, which became a big hit for us, um, it probably wasn't the right place for me. So my misfortune at the time ultimately became good fortune a few years later when um, I ended up going to work for Barry Diller for a little while. That's a whole nother story. Um, to, just to get us to VH1, which is where you were, you were sure. trying to get to. But, but the um, audience should know this has a happy ending because obviously you're going to be back at NBC, NBC Universal, yes. not, not, yeah. and not in the far too distant future after this. Um, so. Seven years later. Yeah, so you were allowed, you were allowed back. I was allowed back. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I went back to NBC, I, when, I, when I got to, and I moved my family to the West Coast at that point, Mm. I went in and I would say a good 60% of the people were still there from when I was there on the entertainment side. And I remember walking in um, to, th- th- we had a, a famous marketing team of John Miller and Vince Manzi. Yep. And I remember walking into the two of them and saying, okay, I don't know who's dumber, you guys for still being here or me for coming back. Um, but they, they, they were great guys and I, and I love working with them. But anyway, so when I got to VH1, so I, I, so I, I went to work for Barry Diller after NBC and then I got recruited to, to go to VH1 to be their head of programming. Okay. Um, and what, what, time, yeah, what, what, what is VH1 at this point? What, what is I'm VH1 was a mixture of comedy and, um, comedy and music. Um, more comedy than music. I mean, Rosie O'Donnell, I think, had a weekly show um, on the network. It was MTV's really sickly younger cousin. Um, and Young, younger cousin? Yes. It, 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 um, the MTV not, was, not in terms of the audience, though, right? Like, I always felt VH1 had an older aim no, audience. No, just, just in terms of existence. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but yes, it, it, it attracted a different audience than MTV. And um, the new president, uh, John Sykes, who was one of the original creators of MTV, great marketing guy, um, recruited me um, and I went to work there and um, had a great five-year run. I mean, we did pop-up video and behind the music. I want to get in there. Let's get into this. So behind the music, do you remember how many episodes in the first season you guys ordered? Oh, man. At least Um, least according to what I can find online. I, I don't remember, but I'm guessing... I probably ordered probably 12 or 13 in the first cycle because I was used to the broadcast cycle. Um, probably expanded it to expanded it once we knew it was a hit. Yes. You, uh, first season listed under first season episodes, 38. Yeah, that's 30. possible. I mean, I, you know, the one thing in cable, when you, when you find something that works, you overdo oh, yeah. it. You pumped out. Do you remember the first episode? I do. There was, well, there were two. The, the very, very first one, the, the, the one that started it, was Millie Vanilli. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, and I remember that very clearly because I was driving, I lived in Woodbury and I was driving in Woodbury, town on Long Island. And um, I heard a promo for Macaulay Culkin, E True Hollywood Stories. And oh. it was a special. It wasn't a series yet. It was just a special. And they just talked about all the craziness of Macaulay Culkin's life. And he was like 12 years old. And I thought, 
oh, damn, I bet you music people have similar stories. And I called a friend of mine, a producing friend of mine who had worked for me before, Gay Rosenthal. And I said, um, I have this idea for a music show. It's kind of like um, biography, but for musicians. But, um, but I want to tell the stories crazier, you know, because they have crazy stories. And the first one, I'm, you know, like as an example, um, like whatever happened to Millie Vanilli? Like what was the story about like what's the story behind Millie Vanilli? Like, we don't really know. We just know they lip synced on their music. They got caught and their careers were over, but there has to be a great story behind it. And so I let, I, I just let that idea germinate. And she called me up, I don't know, maybe a week later. And she said, guess who's coming over to, for a barbecue. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, and she lived in Los Angeles. I go, who? She goes, Rob and Fab. I'm like, who are Rob and Fab? And she goes, Millie Vanilli. Because Millie Vanilli weren't their names. It was the name right. of the group. And so she literally had a barbecue. She had gotten, she found their manager. She found them. And she called me up and said, I'm having a barbecue. I'll let you know how it goes. And then she called me back after. She goes, Jeff, you won't, this is unbelievable. You won't believe it. It's, it's fantastic. And so I commissioned the, you know, the first episode. It wasn't even a series yet. I, it basically was like, let's do it as a pilot. Do Millie Vanilli. And then... Um, so she started, you know, she started producing that. And then, um, I was reading people magazine and there was, um, there was like 10 or 12 people on the cover of people magazine. And it was, and the headline was from millions to zero. Yep. Know exactly where you're going here. Right. And, yeah. and I looked down in the bottom right corner, I think it was the bottom right corner. If my memory's right. was MC hammer. Yep. And I was like, MC hammer. And I looked and I looked in the article and it said 33 million to zero. Now remember, we're talking like 25 years ago, $33 million was the equivalent of like $70 million now. Like how did he lose $33 million? So we contacted um, uh, MC Hammer and he agreed to do the series. Wow. And then it just, it sort of blossomed from there. And then, then, you know, we all got together to talk about, all right, who else would be good stories and we were we were a little flippant about it at the time, but we, we you know we obviously took the series very seriously. But but if you had tragedy in your in your career, you were a candidate for for behind the music. Yeah, I mean, Boy George was uh, episode three. So you start yeah. off that that iconic series that's gone like nineteen seasons or something. I don't even know how many episodes, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Nilly uh, Vanilli, MC Hammer, Boy George, one, two, three. Yeah, and then I think Billy Joel was five. And Billy Joel was in there, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was um Yeah, Fleetwood Fleetwood Mac manager. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac was in there. You had like Fleetwood a studio. Mac. I mean that, and then and you know, once we got Fleetwood Mac and Billy, that's that then you're starting to get, you know, it's it's not um it it's not a a, a sideshow anymore. Now it's legitimate bands and artists. That other artists respect. That other artists respect. I mean Millie Vanilli's not getting you Madonna. Right. But Fleetwood Mac ultimately gets you Madonna. And, 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 and so the series went from kind of the sideshow acts to legitimate music acts that just, you know, had that roller coaster ride. And the one thing we did do, um, I think it was, it was George Mall, Gay, and myself were sort of the, the creators. The one thing we did that I think was really, really important that's made it stand out from every other biography type show is we didn't tell the story in a linear fashion. We mm. always told the story with the, 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 the moment of sort of the, the worst moment in the career at the very top. 
And I, I believe we kind of created what's now known as the super tease. Make sure you show people what's coming, like the big part. Don't start from the boring beginning. No, you're right. Because I was looking at when the show launched. It was something like 95. 96. 96, yeah. right? So you're you're ahead of the reality TV boom. I mean, yeah. the reality TV boom won't start till 99, 2000, 2001, right? Yeah, uh, but I, I think our decision to start this story with um, sort of the downfall of the artist it, you know, this, the stories always were rise, fall, rise again. Some of them fell again and rose again. Um, but we started with the fall. Then we jumped back to the beginning. And, you know, and we, and we, of course, we'd stop the story right when it was at the worst and you didn't know what was going to happen. Like in Millie Vanilli, you know, Rob and Fab are talking about, you know, they were running, they were running uh, around UCLA. The, the phone rang. And they were probably like a big phone back then, like a big, you know, cellular phone <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or, or, or whatever. And the manager, you know, his manager called and said, it's over. And he goes, what do you mean? What's over? They found out. And we'd stop the story right there. Then we'd go back to the beginning, you know, Germany, where one of, where, um, where one of, the, one of the artists was from. You know, we, we would start with his origin story then and then bring you up. You know, act, we wouldn't bring you to the opening part of the story until like Act Four, right? Um, and then we'd finish it off after that. But um, so it was uh, it was it was really just a great series. Give me the quick story of who had the idea for Pop Up Video and where were you the first time you heard it? Pop Up Video um, was actually a pilot in development when I joined VH1. Oh, okay. Um, it was Tad Lowe and the other guy. <laughs> Sorry, other guy. Um, I, I know it's Tad Lowe and his partner, but I can't remember his partner's name. Okay. Um, anyway, it was a, the, my only contribution to to pop up video was slow them down and make them a little bigger. Because <laughs> when I watched the pilot, I watched it from my desk and my TV at the time it was probably a twenty inch TV or something, and it, they were going by too fast and I couldn't read them. So. I'm sure when they were sitting in an edit suite and the screen was right up in front, you know, 12 inches from them, it looked clear and they could read them. So that was my contribution to pop a video, but it went on, it went on the air and it was a, um, obviously a big success for us. Um, and it, it, it kind of took some of the thunder away from MTV and you could start to see the shift from MTV being the cool, you know, older brother or sister to VH1 now taking some of that uh, coolness away. Mm. All right, so you make your way over to NBC after VH1, correct? Yeah, so I, I, um, I spent, I think, almost six years at VH1, and um, we, did, we did a great show called Storytellers, created by this guy, Bill Flanagan, um, where an artist would um, basically play acoustically, uh, but they would tell you the stories behind their songs, and it would be an audience of, like, anywhere from 50 to 200 people. And it was really just fantastic because we'd have the biggest stars in music would play, would play this series. And one of the episodes, the Billy Joel episode, Jeff, I invited Jeff Zucker to come. I had not spoken to him in probably 10 years at that point. No, maybe less. Like seven to 10, yeah, about seven or eight years. I hadn't spoken to him. And we, we ran into each other and I invited him to come to the Billy Joel. And um, it was one of the best concerts we ever had it was two and a half hours long billy joel was amazing jeff just loved it and we ended up staying in touch and that was fortuitous because two years later he became president of nbc 
and invited me to join him out in Los Angeles. And as I think, I think he said, you're the only guy from news that I know who moved to entertainment successfully. And since he was making that kind of leap, I think he wanted a little, um, a little protection, uh, someone who had that experience. And so I, I moved my family and, uh, uh, I had, what was the, what was the job? What was the department that you were overseeing from day one? Yeah. So, um, reality was starting to just move. I think ABC had millionaire and, um, I, I think Survivor had just started on CBS and NBC had no reality department. So he basically said, come in, start the reality department. And I need you to take over a couple of other things that are a little less important. So I was, I became executive vice president of reality specials and movies. Got it. Made for TV movies. And the MOWs are like not happening. Well, they were, they were slowly falling. So I literally, I had a movie department. There was no reality department. There was a specials department, which was Jason Dinsmore, who was the assistant. And this guy named Kurt Sharp, he was the specials department. And then there was a movie department. There was a head of movies and there were three movie executives, Stephen Volka, Jamila Hunter, Jen O'Connell. Oh my God. Yes. Jen, when Jen O'Connell was on the show, she talked yeah. about this when she worked in MOWs. Yeah, yeah. So they were the movie department and I had nobody in reality. And, um, and then Jen moves over, right? Doesn't Jen move so, over? So what happened was I was like, all right, guys, apparently we're not going to be making a lot of movies. We're going to make, you know, a half dozen or so movies a year. I think at the time they were making 20 or 25. Right. It used to be a huge cut it down to like six to eight movies a year. Um, but I have to build this reality department. So I said, why don't you do movies and reality just like me? And you can teach me movies and I'll teach you reality. So Jamila and Jen moved over. Um, not a hundred percent because they also wanted to still make their movies. Like nobody really wanted to be in reality. Reality wasn't a cool thing back in 2001. Mm -hmm. Movies and scripted was still cooler and still is, but, um, well, reality was, I mean, it was, it was game shows and, and Survivor was, was just coming out, but it, it was, was game shows. Weakest but, Link yeah, and Idol wasn't even on the air yet. Right. Um, but Millionaire, you know, obviously made uh, an impact, huge financial impact. I think for them, it took ABC to number one, the t- you know, when they were running it four nights a week, um, for a little while at least. And then Survivor obviously, you know, took the very old CBS audience and made it much, much younger. Well, I would love, I would love for you to clear something up for me because I've had two previous guests on the show that have told me two different versions. I would love to get your recollection of when and how the Biggest Loser pitch came in. I, I've been told, I've been told by Ben that it involved a Super Bowl party where you were soft pitched it, maybe at more a social function. Um, uh, Howard Owens was like, no, that's not the case. Maybe Jeff had been told something at a party, but it was a full on pitch. We went in well, and saw him. The, the guy who could vouch for my story has died. Unfortunately, John Ferreter. But, mm. um, but the story is, uh, Dave Broom had a pitch, pitch for some weight loss show with, um, with trainers and Ben had bought a format called, um, fat chance which was about families who lost weight together. And they each mentioned it to me. It Wait, might when, have you, been a, when you say bought a format, do you mean an international format? Yes, or he just had an, something? It was okay. an international format called okay. Fat Chance. Okay. And um, 
they each whispered in my ear at some event or party. I don't remember which party, but it all came together, I believe, at Nappy in Vegas when John Ferreter put the three of us in a room and said, here, you know, and they, and they each pitched their version. And it should be documented because there's, um, uh, there, there's, there was an arbitration about it where they had to talk about the real origins because somebody else claimed they had the idea for it. Oh. But in any event, my recollection is the, is the four of us were in a room together. They basically talked about, Dave talked about pairing each person with a trainer. Um, ben talked about fat chance. And I believe what I said was, and I don't remember if I said it at that meeting or it came up later. I said, look, why don't we just do Survivor for overweight people? So let's take that competitive reality format that Survivor had created and let's create two teams. And, and, and that was sort of the impetus. And then they went and created the format. Mm. Um, but that's how I believe it all came together. That That is the best version of the story I've heard. That makes the most sense of every version I've heard. I, I had not heard about a format ever optioned before. I don't believe. I could be wrong. I have to go back and check the tape. But I don't feel like I've ever had the other format from Ben's side ever mentioned before. That is fantastic. Yeah, and that, that could have... John was representing Ben. I think right. was, John was representing both. John might have been the one who said, Ben has this format, Fat Chance. Ben might have never even mentioned it. I don't even... I don't remember. Right. But I know... That was the format I heard about. When Apprentice comes in, this is under your watch, yes. right? When Apprentice comes in, is Donald Trump in the room for this pitch? No. So the meeting that when you first heard the idea, it was just Mark Burnett? Mark Burnett came in, but, he, but Zucker was in the pitch with me. Um, and Mark Burnett was a big deal at that time. Um, Survivor was huge. I don't want to say that. Survival was really successful. Was massive. <laughs> Survival was really successful. Um, and Mark Burnett was a brand. Like advertisers loved him. And most importantly, Mark Burnett's brand being so strong, reality w- would never get the same CPM cost per thousand from advertisers as scripted stuff would. But B- Mark Burnett's show, because it was so successful and so well received, did. And so having a Mark Burnett show and also knowing how Mark used to market to the advertisers. They really liked him. Um, and his English accent gave it a little what, Was this the first follow-up to Survivor for him? I, I'm trying to think of the Mark yeah. Burnett timeline. I think it was the first... I, I, he might have sold shows in between, but I, I don't know that they made it to air. So right. I, think it was the, I think it was the follow-up to Survivor. And I guess and, and, it was because he pitched it as Survivor in the big in the biggest jungle of all right. Manhattan. Right. And so I, I think it was his follow-up. And and Jeff Zucker was buying it no matter what. <laughs> like, like it didn't matter what the pitch was. As a matter of fact, when he mentions Trump, the two of us kind of like we weren't very excited because we are both Jeff and I were both from New York. And in New York, Donald Trump would go to the opening of an envelope. You know, Donald Trump's... Wait, hold on, Jeff. Wait, hold on. The only other time I've heard that joke before, that phrase, was from Barry Diller. When, yeah, because I'm old. Did, wait, was that We're a... But, but did you get that from Barry Diller working for no, him? That was a common phrase. Okay. And, and, and currently a dad joke. I, no, I, I love I that. I, I use that phrase. Much, I use that phrase because I, I, I loved when I heard Barry Diller say it once on a video conference. I'm like, I'm stealing that for the rest of my life. And you're the yeah, only other person uh, I've ever heard use it. 
as I recall, when, especially when I was at VH1, Donald Trump's PR assistant used to call our PR people saying, do you have any parties you can come to? Oh my gosh. Anyway, yeah. so when Mark pitched that he had Donald Trump for season one, it, that was not why we bought it. It really wasn't. It, it, Jeff and I actually thought that was not so great. But Mark already had the deal with with. But he had Trump. already he already had him in his one. But he but he yeah. talked about you know and we'll get Richard Branson and we'll get he talked about some some you know and we, and we threw out maybe Jack Welch will do it one year. We threw out really big titans of industry, um, but to an outsider like Mark, I think Donald Trump was an exciting get and was you know he was a very public mogul. Um, and and there weren't a lot of public moguls, you know. That wasn't a moguls don't go no, public. That you're often. right. There there weren't celebrity you know, moguls. Yeah. So um, so Donald was a little bit of a joke. I mean, honestly, I was I I was not impressed by that piece of the equation. But it was Mark Burnett, and you know, and even even the pitch wasn't, in my opinion, very exciting. And they talked about, and they'll open lemonade stands. And, you know, it didn't sound like, and, and who really wants to watch business people work? Mm-hmm. But, you know, to Mark's credit, when he produces something and his team of people, um, they know what people want are, are drama and human melodrama. They, 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 you know, the, the work they did was, was meaningless. It was more the backstabbing and the, the same stuff that you saw from Survivor. Right. It was all the strategic alliances. But what really turned out to be gold, and also understand, so not only was Donald supposed to be only there for one season, he right off the bat, Mark said, and he's not going to be in that much of the show. He'll be there at the beginning to announce the challenge, and he'll be there at the end to, to eliminate a contestant. Right. And so in the pilot, in the first episode that was delivered to us, the boardroom was probably three or four minutes long and was the final act of the series. We, the boardroom, boardroom was so much fun and exciting. And the rest of the show was just okay, in all honesty. Um, and we said, let's expand the boardroom. Like, let's make it the full, you know, fifth act. So a full eight minutes. Eventually, it would become two full acts. Maybe two, it would almost be two and a half. I think when they made it two hours... Yeah, I feel like I, I think the boardroom was like three acts at that point. Yeah, and, it, was, it was yes, but it, was, it it became almost two and a half acts, even when it was one hour. Wow! Because that was really um, the gold, and he delivered, and he was one of the best reality stars we ever had. And actually, it was really fun working with him. All the shit that he does now was great for reality TV. Horrible for the country, <laughs> but great for reality TV. His sound bites. His half truths, his um, his 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 continuous belief that he was number one, even when we were number fourteen, I know. didn't matter to him. He would and, he would he would he would uh, print off articles about The Apprentice and like circle them with like a marker and like mail them to Ben and me and right? Jeff Zucker. We all got him. It's so weird. We all got them. He and and you know it, it would just be that he would circle the best statistic, and he'd ignore right. the other ones that you know it could. The headline could be you know it could have been Apprentice falls out of top ten, but he'd circle we were number one with you know women fifty to seventy like whatever right. whatever it happened to be. It's it, it wasn't as, uh, as 
All right, let me let me jump ahead a little bit here. So you go, you eventually go and run Bravo and you launch Cry for the Straight Guy onto your watch, Project Runway. And then after success there at that network, which is one of the biggest cable networks on the planet at that point, um, you get the job in 2007 of president of all NBCU cable. We bought Universal because Bravo was such a success. It gave um, G- Bob Wright, who was president of NBC, and GE at the time, a guy named uh, Jeff Immel, it gave them confidence that we could, um, that entertainment cable networks were really valuable because uh, we only had MSNBC and CNBC before that. So Bravo's success made them want more cable networks. And one of the biggest cable networks was entertainment cable network was USA. Right. And USA came with, you know, there was another network called Sci-Fi, which was okay. It was, you know, probably top 15 network. But USA was like top three, if not top one. I don't even remember. Um, anyway, but it came with a movie studio and nobody wanted a movie studio back then. But the cable group was so valuable and so successful that we ended up buying Universal and became NBC Universal. And I took over those cable groups. So it was, it was Sci-Fi USA and Bravo. Okay. A year or so later, we bought Oxygen. Got so it. we acquired Oxygen. Jerry Laybourne had made an independent you know, um, channel. We bought Oxygen, brought that into the fold. And then... Um, was Style then launched not too far Style, after that? Style, I thought Style was owned by Comcast, to be honest. I don't remember. I don't think we had Style back then. Okay. And G4 was Comcast probably then too. G4 was Comcast. Yeah, Style and G4 right. were owned by Comcast. We didn't... Okay, that came after the Comcast deal. deal. That makes sense. Yeah, until the Comcast deal. Well, um, I mean, because I read an article that when you got that job in 2007, the NBCU cable group, or at least USA, like USA was referred to as the fifth broadcast network Yeah, at that point. And yeah, but we, we actually bought it in 2005. Right. Um, I, uh, so I, I just got a different title in 2007, <laughs> probably a similar job. I think we just got added it. oxygen to the portfolio. It was got it. Contra- my contract was probably up, so they gave me a new title. I don't know. <laughs> but I, but you're, there was a four-year stretch. Like the article I read from 2007 said the NBCU cable group was off a four-year run of being yes. the top-rated cable group at that point. That's correct. And, and that, like, that, that era of USA is crazy how successful USA was at that point. I mean, you had, and we're talking like the, the, the blue sky era, right? Like burn yeah, notice and monk. It, monk. Was, it was monk. It was, um, blue, burn, collar, blue white collar burn notice. Um, uh, psych. Burn, yeah. No, psych? Bonnie hammer and Jeff Wachtel had a great run and Jackie DeCrenis had a great run, um, at, U, at USA. But when, but when we actually bought it, it was Doug Herzog was running it. Huh. So Doug Herzog was running USA and Bonnie was running sci-fi and Doug had put Monk on the air. I didn't so know that. Monk and that blue sky, you know, Doug had started that. Um, and then, um, and then Bonnie took over USA and sci-fi and then Bonnie really ran with it um, and did an amazing job um, putting on um, just one hit after the other. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't not hit it out of the park. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And she quickly, she quickly brought the network to number one, and it stayed number one until I left. And then, um, you know, then streamers came along and all hell kind of broke loose. But yeah, they had, they had a great run, and, and the cable group was the most, um, uh, most uh, profitable group in the whole company. Right. Which is why when I got my NBC job, uh, when, I, when I took over the network in 2009, 
I would only take it over if I didn't give up the cable group. Because NBC was losing at the time six or seven hundred million dollars a year, and the cable group was making two billion. Wow! So, who wanted to run a business that was losing seven hundred million and give up a business that was making two billion when you worked for a company like GE, right? Where all that mattered was the bottom line. The bottom line, yeah. Not the state of the business, not the creativity of the business, not the value. Just you know, bottom line driven, and so. I ended up with that big portfolio of 16 networks. Um, so, so I'm like 26 years old. I'm, I get hired to work for Ben. Um, I, get, I start on a Monday. Nikki Fink breaks the news that he is uh, now going to be the new chairman of NBC that Friday. Um, I get thrown into it. We are in Burbank for a little bit, but then we make our way over to Universal where all of you executives are now on the same floor. And I'm now on the same floor as your office. You're down at the other end of the hall. Um, and I'll never forget when, when it was time for Ben to leave, like he wanted to go. And I remember the day he walked down to your corner of the building and I feel like pitched you the idea of you taking the job after him. I remember this. And I remember he had already talked to Zucker, obviously, and he like just sprinted down to your corner and you guys were in there for like an hour. And I remember him coming out and it was like all the weight of the world had been lifted off his shoulders because it seemed like you were down with some sort of plan like that. And we eventually left, we start up Electus and I get, and I get a phone call and it's, uh, and it's Lynn, right? That was on, who's Lynn was on your desk at the time. Lenny. Lenny. Lenny was on your desk at the time. Lenny calls me. And I'm like, hey. And she's like, hey, I have Jeff for you. And I'm like, really? For me? He's, yeah. So you, you get on the phone and you're like, hey, man, I just wanted to call and say I heard you got promoted. And I just want to say congratulations. That's it. Just, just want to say I'm really, really happy for you. You're off the desk. You guys are now starting the company and just want to say, you know, good for you. I was like, two people, Jeff, two people called me to say congratulations. And out of, out of nowhere, it was you and Jim Wyatt. <laughs> who, who was running William Morris at the time. And for whatever reason, you guys called. And I always thought that was like, I don't know, if, I, I doubt you remember that, but it stuck with me. And it's a lesson for other people. Like, that's why you do things like that because it sticks with people in that position for the rest of their careers. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And it was a really interesting purview for me being 26 years old, knowing nothing, but being on every single call. And, and to be on every single call and to be well aware of what was going on during the Jay Leno Conan transition and Conan, oh, yeah. right? I have to get into it because I'm reading the Johnny Carson book right now right. and, and reading the Johnny Carson book about when his contract was at an end and, and who succeeded to him. It reminded me of what went on at, during Ben's time and, and your time at NBC. And for people that don't know the decision for Jay to leave the tonight show and go into uh, the 10 o'clock slot with his own show and Conan take over at 1130 as usual on the tonight show that decision was made between with Ben and Jeff, like before you came over. Right. And then you come over in 09 and the J show is not doing well. And now the decision is made. I had to go back and like research all this because I, I had to refresh myself. Now the decision is, all right, we got to tell Jay Leno that his show's not doing well and we need to, we need to change it up. But you tell him, here's what we want to do. We want to make it a half hour. And Jay is like, oh, that's great. And he says, and we want to put it on at 1130. And then we'll just push Conan and the Tonight Show back to midnight. And, and the article I read said you were the one that went to like Jay's dressing room and told him that plan. And then you had to be the one to then go talk to Conan about it. 
as well. Yeah, and that, then, that, you, that, you inherited that, this. That, that whole load of crap got dropped in my lap. Yes. So, you know, the, 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 the good and the bad of taking over, um, you know, a top level position is you inherit some good stuff and you inherit some bad stuff. So sometimes in my career, I inherited good stuff. Um, <laughs> I inherited the pilot for, um, for uh, pop-up video. Right. right. When I took over Bravo, I inherited the pilot of Queer Eye. Yeah. Um, now everything that was done after that, you know, had my hands in it, but sometimes you get lucky. You know, when I left NBC universal this, this last time in 2011, um, I had just bought the voice. And so, you know, the team that took over after me got to inherit the voice, yep. which, you know, which turned the network in, you know, back to number one. So sometimes you get good and sometimes you get bad. And so, the Jay Leno at 10 o'clock was something I took over the job in August and Jay Leno went at 10 o'clock in October. Mm -hmm. So I had two months, you know, to prep it. Um, it was 10 o'clock, you know, every night. So we had no, remember we got rid of all our dramas. Um, and then within a month, you know, it started, started fine, started strong within a month. The affiliates were, um, basically saying they're going to drop NBC. They were going to drop us because the ratings were so bad at 10 o'clock that it was killing their local news. And Conan's ratings weren't very strong either, partly because Jay's ratings weren't strong and it just, you know, flow of audience was still valuable back then, less so now, but back then. And, and you know, there was some belief that Conan wasn't as broad for the Tonight Show, as as um, as he needed to be, as 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 the show required, um, you know. In hindsight, Conan was not given enough of an opportunity. Um, I don't know that he would have been successful, but he certainly wasn't given a fair shake, mm -hmm. um, and I take responsibility for that. Um, but I was between a rock and a hard place, and um, our affiliates were basically. Um, abandon, saying they were going to abandon us. It was going to be a big public embarrassing fight with our affiliates. It was going to be embarrassing to everybody involved. We had, um, we had, just, be, we had just agreed to be, um, to be bought by Comcast. So we now, I also had an 18-month due diligence process where Comcast was going to look at, our, you know, look at our strategy and our books and our economics and all that. So we had a lot of pressure on us on top of it. And it, it, so we could not leave Jay at 10 o'clock for much longer. And so by the time, so he premiered in October and by the time December came around, we realized we had to get, we had to make a change. You know, Conan wasn't doing very well. Jay wasn't doing very well. We, you know, we already lost prime time. So we were in third or fourth place from first. Um, and the, losing another day part late night, because Conan was, you know, it wasn't going to work for Conan. Um, the way it was again, not necessarily his fault. Um, so we would, it, the headline would be, you know, NBC, you know, loses first place of late night for the first time in, I don't know, 50 years forever. Um, and that was not a headline we wanted to see. So had to come up with something, some strategy that maybe preserved the situation. I remember talking to, you know, people like, um, Lauren Michaels and Dick Wolf, who were, um, you know, who were really 
Yodas in their in their respective fields. They 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 just you know they had they just had wisdom mm-hmm. that I needed. You know I needed some help, and um, you know I remember Lorne very clearly saying, "Look, Jimmy's your future." Jimmy, you know, and Jimmy's fine. Like Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. Jimmy's your future. Don't worry about him. He'll do whatever you need him to do, but he's your long-term play. Um, and, and, you know, that, that stuck into my head. And then, then I came up with this idea of what if I put Jay back at 1130 for a half hour? Um, he only, he really liked telling jokes about politics and, and the world's events, he didn't love interviewing guests. Everybody sort of knows that about him. He wasn't, he didn't love interviews, but he loved telling jokes. So I could give him that half hour and then we could push the Tonight Show back, you know, a half hour until we got our, you know, our sea legs back until we, we could fix our 10 o'clock. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was a temporary, a temporary fix. How, how long um, did that run for? Which, the, the, the half hour J show. Oh, well, it didn't happen. Right. It didn't happen. So what did happen was I went to talk to Jay about it. Um, and he, he, you know, it took a little Deb, Debbie, his, um, his producer, Debbie Vickers, Debbie Vickers was very supportive and helpful. And so I cleared it with her first. And then we went to see Jay, Jay, you know, Jay thought about it and, and he, 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 in the, in the meeting within a half hour of the meeting, he said he would do it. Um, I first had to tell him that the 10 o'clock thing wasn't happening, wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And, and he had a pay or play. So he was getting paid right. for the next two years, regardless of whether he was on the air or not. But his crew um, and everybody could still stay on yeah. and, and, and be a half hour the show. Pitch. The pitch was, look, we could save everybody. We could save everybody's jobs. Um, we'll, we'll make it a half hour, which is the best part of the show anyway, from your perspective. And then I thought that maybe I could convince Conan He'll still have the, it'll, and it'll be called the Jay Leno show. So Conan will still have the tonight show. It'll be a half hour, you know, a half hour later. And I was hoping that we could convince Conan, you know, and, and I, and, and so he came, um, he came with his producer, Jeff Ross to my office. Um, I had called his agents like two minutes before and somehow in those two minutes that Conan was riding up in the elevator they got to him before I could. <laughs> so he walked into my office as, as white as a ghost. I mean, yeah. he, he looked, and, and he was actually, he was very calm in the office. Um, I told him, that, you know, he knew what I was going to tell him. I told him he made a, you know, he made a very, um, a very clear plea. Um, five years ago, he made the deal with Jeff Zucker and Ben to, um, to take over the Tonight Show five years later, and for that he would resign and stay hosting the you know the late 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 show with Conan O'Brien or whatever it was called. Um, and and now we're basically five years he waited, plus his whole life basically, and we weren't going to give him that opportunity. And I said, I don't want to take the Tonight Show away from you. I want you to do it. I want you to do everything you do now. Just do it at twelve o'clock. Um, and, you know, he, he was clearly not happy, but he, he didn't raise his voice. He was, um, you know, he, he was clearly unnerved by it, mm-hmm. as was I and Mark Raboff, who was with me. Um, but it, we weren't shouting. It wasn't, it was, it was a very cordial meeting. Um, and then he left and um, the next 48 hours was just like a hellish 48 hours. Um, it started to leak to the press um he started taking meetings around town to see 
you know, who, who might pick him up at 1130. I think Fox was very serious. Mm. Um, but I, we knew that Fox couldn't do it because of the commitments to yeah, they, um, syndicated programming. Right. So we didn't, we knew there wasn't too much risk that he was going to leave, but, but there were, there was making, they were making a lot of noise. And then, um, I don't know, I, you know, his agents called and, and assured me that first they yelled at me, but then they said, look, he's going to do it. Just give him time to come to terms with it. And I was like, of course, tell him to take as much time as he wanted. But um, remember this Comcast mergers sort of happening at the same time. And, and we're getting killed in the press. You know, it's starting to leak. Jeff is getting killed. I'm getting killed. And, um, and what makes it even more uh, sensitive is that Conan O'Brien and Jeff Zucker went to Harvard at the same yeah. time. Well, and, and they did the deal. They did yeah. the handshake deal that, that said, right. you know, it was more they, than they, they went way back. I mean, yeah, they went way back. Yeah. You know, look, no one says these decisions are easy when you're in these jobs. They look glamorous and fun, but they're not always glamorous and fun. Um, but anyway, there's more to this story. I, sure. Some details. But, I, but, I, I, Bill Carter wrote actually a really good book that has most of it in there. Yeah. Um, you know, look, Jeff, Jeff got very frustrated and ultimately gave um, Conan uh, a, you know, basically said, you have 24 hours to make a decision. Um, that didn't sit well with Conan. And five o'clock the next morning, he, he releases something called People of Earth. And it's this it's sort of famous letter that he wrote about how he wasn't going to take this job and basically fuck us. Um, and, and, and he had every right to do it. And, um, it, it, you know, it was the, it was the beginning of social media and the beginning of likes and dislikes. And so that just exploded and team Conan, team Coco, mm-hmm. um, emerged. And, um, I, it was a lot of meetings and a lot of lawyers and a lot of conversations. Eventually Conan would leave. Um, I think he had six, he couldn't do anything for six months. Right. I, he was, he on, got he was a big, on a break. big paycheck. Yep. He couldn't do anything for six months. Um, Jay went, Jay went back to the tonight show. I think he would do it for another three years, three or four mm-hmm. years before Jimmy Fallon ultimately took it over. Um, but let's talk Conan about had a good successful run in, on Turner. But let's talk about the timing of it because you just talked about how that was like just the dawn of like social media stuff. And from my perspective, you talked about it earlier as well at the top of uh, this when we talked about upfronts and how upfronts had so much more meaning and so much more pressure before the OTT you know, platforms emerged, right? Yeah. And I feel like the same was with the scrutiny and the coverage of NBC heads. Yeah, well, think, think about there was no Netflix originals. There was no right. Amazon. There was no Hulu. So there was none of that only, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Um, no Apple and Plus. What was interesting to me was cable was actually more successful than broadcast at the time. Cable, cable in total. Cable in total probably had a 70% share of audience and broadcast probably had a 30% share. But nobody wrote about the cable networks. They didn't care about the cable networks because not, not, not one of them was big enough to care about. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I think, I, and I never understood why the coverage of broadcasts was so detailed and they, they would scrutinize everything, every word that came out of the broadcast, you know, uh, publicity machine and cable, you could just give them a press release and they would write the press release and they never question it. And I'll tell you, Ari Emanuel 
gave me an answer that that really helped me understand it. Because I said to him one, one day, I go, Ari, I ran cable for years and it was very profitable. You never called me. I run NBC two weeks. You call me every day twice. How come? And he said, because in broadcast, that's the only way one of our producers can win the lottery. Mm. And he's right. He was 100% right. Because if you, had a, if you had a hit in syndication, like Dick Wolf did, or, or, or you know, Friends. Grey's Gray, Ana- Anatomy, yeah. You know, you'd make a fortune. You'd make good money producing, but you'd make a for- like a fortune, like hundreds of millions of dollars you had the potential to make if you had a hit comedy or even a hit drama, episodic drama on um, broadcast TV you would not be that successful with a cable hit. You just, you wouldn't make that kind of money. You could do well, but you would never make that kind of money at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly guys like Ryan Murphy went on to do incredibly well, but it wasn't, you know, cable gave them the groundswell, but it wasn't until a streamer paid them buckets of money. But the syndication pot of gold of a hit broadcast comedy and to some extent drama was the, 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 the golden goose that I think all the agencies were clamoring for because they were, you know, they would get a, 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 they would get a um, package fee as well, which was worth millions and millions of dollars. And, and it really wasn't in cable. So when he, when he, when he said that to me, it, it just, it was like, of course, why didn't I think of that? And so as a result, the, the, the press just cared about the broadcast business and every move you made was, was scrutinized. And now, you know, you also have to understand what's happened in the last 10 years. There's probably half the amount of the press and 10 times as many stories to write. All right. All right last thing, because I want to leave it on a high yeah. note. I took you down that road. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back uh, before we go. You're not going to talk about my $200,000 bathroom? I'm not, I, I, the world you, has changed. You, you brought You're up the bathroom. I wasn't going to bring up the bathroom, but yes, like the bathroom, that story was like part of the scrutiny. It's like, what? Right. We're talking about the NBC's president wanting a bathroom? Like what? So right. what? The chairman wants a bathroom. But that thing was one of those things that got reverberated around hallways. Like, hey, did you hear about Gaspin wanting a bathroom? Uh, did you I, want I, a bathroom? Someone stopped me at my gym and said, did you really put a $1 million bathroom in your office? <laughs> and I said, what do you know? Who, whose By idea the way, was the bathroom? It cost $54,000. I asked the head of finance to actually pull the, the, the receipts for me because I would have never commissioned a $200,000 bathroom. I just wanted a bathroom in my office. That's all. By the way, you every know other executive at my level had one. And we had a small little bathroom in the middle of the, of the hallway. Yeah. And every time I'd have a minute to go take a piss, I'd run there and it would be full. And I had to run back to my office and... That's all. It was but, really, it, I wasn't trying to be a prima donna. But the Burbank office had a, had a bathroom. The Burbank yes. chairman's uh, office yes, had exactly. a bathroom. This was not breaking like no. precedent. And everyone for, else on the other floors, I had actually, there was another office on another floor that I had said, can I just use that office because it has a bathroom? And they said, no, we want you to stay on the 11th floor. We'll just, we'll just put a bathroom in. So they, I didn't even ask for it. They, but imagine they that. This would, this would not be a story now. Yeah, but it was. It was a huge story. And it actually haunted me for a couple of years because every time you Google me, that's what would come up first. Oh, my God. Oh I, some, my God. And, and they, put, they put my head in a gold toilet seat. The gawker. And they this mocked was, up the cover. This was that era. There was, there was that gawker, yeah. Nicky Fink era of yes. like... Yes, but that know. wasn't Nicky Fink. That was Sharon Waxman. 
That was Sharon Waxman. Was that Radar? What was that? No, Sharon um, does the rap. the rap. That was the rap. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this. Really. Absolutely. Honestly, thanks. Was this okay? Did you have a good time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, man. I, you know, so many years later into my career, not worrying about my next job, I can talk more openly about this stuff. So I'm happy to. You, I don't you, really want to write a book. You brought it. You brought it today. Thank you, sir. All right. Good to see you. Hope stay safe and wish your family the best. I will. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. All right. Take it easy.